It is wonderful to be with you. I'll ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to just not so much exposit these verses, but hover above them and consider what is in these verses as it relates to anxiety. Anxiety. And I'm curious how many, if not all of you, have ever experienced this feeling of anxiety or worry. And oftentimes it's the case that we're told, for example, be anxious for nothing, but in everything give thanks. And that is one thing to say and another thing to do. You say, be anxious for nothing. Okay, until the difficulty comes, the hardship comes, the trial comes, and in that moment of trial, what is it that's actually going to take you and deliver you, free you from anxiety? I believe we get a very clear picture of that in the text in Matthew 6. And so I'll begin by just asking this question. I have three primary points. I'll give them to you as we go. The first one is, what is it that causes anxiety? What is the, the driving force that produces anxiety in us? Or worry? Or even a sense of despair? Desperation? There are many things, but what is it essentially that's producing that kind of anxiety? And I believe the answer, as we're going to see, is when we look for security and sustainment in temporal provision. Looking for security in temporal provision. And so for Matthew 6, a few Scriptures just to consider that highlight this theme. Look at verse 19 and 20 to begin with. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So you see the point here, this anxiety is driven by a holding on to things in this kingdom, in this realm, in the temporal state that we're in. Trying to hold on to things. Having your treasure, your security wrapped up in those things. We're driven to anxiety by the constant threat of having those things which give us a sense of security threat. The idea that the thing that I'm trusting in could be taken away from me at any moment. I'm anxious because I can't keep it from being taken from me. I have no guarantee that the things which are sustaining me now are going to be sustaining me tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. And I never know when it might be ripped away from me. So I'm anxious I'm nervous, I'm scared even, because of those things. Many examples we could consider, but just consider some of these things. And we see we will see some of these things later in the text, but such things as food. Is it a legitimate thing to be concerned about the fact that you may not know where your next meal is going to come from? Or for that matter, your clothes. If you had not a, a, a care in the world or not a, a conviction that you know for sure my needs of being clothed, being protected from the elements through clothing, through a house, through a job. But then there's another kind of anxiety. What about a loved one? You ever have anxiety over not having a certainty that the loved ones in your life are going to be there tomorrow? Anxiety over a child that's either ill or is grown and doesn't want anything to do with you? 
Anxiety, all of these, you see the pattern. Anxiety is driven by the fear of loss. The fear of losing something that you, that you, you somehow see your identity to be wrapped up in this thing. And I'm not me if this isn't in my life. I'm anxious about it. It's a terrifying thing. But it could also be something such as the respect and love of those we admire. How much does this produce anxiety? I'm anxious because I don't know what that person's thinking about me. I don't know if what I said bothered them or is going to threaten our relationship. That person that I care much about, what are they thinking about me? Makes us anxious. And the last one I'll consider, and we'll see this at the very end of this chapter, is we're anxious about tomorrow. The constant looming thing that we don't want to lose. And tomorrow is never guaranteed, and that's scary. That produces uncertainty and anxiety that I can't guarantee tomorrow for myself. I say again, anxiety is rooted in the fear of loss. That's the first question. The first point. The second point. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6 is the essential cure for anxiety? What is the most necessary thing for us to know as we come into temptation to be anxious or fearful or desperate? The answer, I believe, is knowing and trusting the character of God's love for you as your Father. Knowing God as Father. That is the essential thing that is needed to fight against anxiety. Look with me at verse 26. Matthew 6, 26, we read this. Behold the fowls of the air, for they, no, they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth. Are you not much better than they? Look down to verse 30. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall He not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? And in verses 31 and 32, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. Constant appeal to who God is as your heavenly Father. This is the essential thing that we must know if we're to be freed from this constant tendency to be afraid of losing what we so desperately are clinging to. And I want you to think about this as it relates to our experiences because like I said, that's easier to say, don't be anxious, Know that God is your Father. That's easy for me to say. But whenever the difficulty comes, what then? Is this something that's just pie in the sky? Well, I want you to consider briefly with me, and trust me, I was tempted, I was tempted at this point to spend much more time, but I do want to respect the time given. Consider with me, or you can turn with me to Psalm number 16. Jesus is telling us that overcoming anxiety has to do with a knowledge of God as Father. That's what He's telling us. A confidence in God as Father. Psalm number 16, beginning in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in Thee do I put my trust. 
O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent, in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now why do I pick that particular psalm as it relates to anxiety and Christ's appeal for us to see the goodness of God and love of God for us as our Father in the face of trials or things that tempt us to despair? Why do I say that? Well, I say that because this particular psalm is precisely the psalm that both Paul and Peter quote with regards to the cross of Christ and His resurrection. David's bones we still have, not Christ's. That this is in reference to the agony that Christ was going to endure. If anyone ever had a right to be anxious about something, it was Jesus in Gethsemane. It was Jesus before the cross. And yet Christ is seen in this prophetic text to be looking to God, His Father, as His lot, as the One He trusted as the one He trusted even to raise Him from the dead. You see how significant this is. Consider especially verses 5-10. through Listen to this. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Now that's an interesting expression and I don't really believe in coincidences in the Scriptures. That this Scripture is applied to Jesus in His death and resurrection. And here there's a reference to a cup of God spoken of as something that seems to be a good thing in this text, doesn't it? And there's a cup described in Gethsemane, isn't there? This is mind-stretching to some degree. But consider this. Thou maintainest my lot. Remember, the threat or the fear of loss produces anxiety. Jesus says, Thy will be done. Not mine. Thy will be done. The Lord, He maintains my lot. My life's in His hands. My Father's hands. He says, The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. The night seasons. The night of dark despair the Lord endured before going to the cross. There He is looking to His Father and trusting Himself to His Father. And He appeals to us in the face of anxiety, and says you have a heavenly Father who loves you. That that ought to grab hold of your attention as you face things that stir you inside. He says, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. 
I shall not be moved. I'll not be shaken by this thing that's telling me that which you're tempted to put your trust in, that's not God as Father, that thing that's trying to shake you up, that's not what you must be looking to. It's the Lord. Trusting the Lord. Him always before me. He's the place of strength, of confidence. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. So this is very practical. My flesh shall rest in hope. There's a deliverance, a hope even in the flesh in light of my relationship to God. My trust and confidence in God. That's what he's saying. And then he says, Thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer an holy one to see corruption. Trusting in God to do this. Anxiety and fear-driven despair are fueled by wrong assumptions about God. Wrong assumptions about God. I'm believing something that's not true about God whenever I'm anxious. Questions like, is God able? Is God able to keep me from this thing? Does God have the power to prevent this thing, whatever it is that's got me stirred up from happening? Is He able to do that? The answer many of us would say yes, but you might be surprised how many people, their explanation for suffering is that, well, God can't. He only is for good. He's not for anything that's not good for you. And so He can't have anything to do with any suffering in your life. He's just not able. He can't overcome human will. Something like this. But the answer is, no, God is able. Absolutely and certainly He's able. Another question is, does God really care about me? Now this is where we begin to get somewhere. Does God care about me? If He has the power to do something, does He care enough about me to do it? Would he be allowing this thing in my life if he did care about if he did care about me? Or is God's purpose for my good different than my own purpose for my good? Isn't that what you mentioned in the beginning? The prayer that he knows what we need, he knows what's good for us. And we assume that if what's happening is not according to my estimation of what's good for me, then well, does God care? Wrong assumptions about God. The third and final point is I want to consider the correlation between contrasted kingdoms in Matthew 6. There is a correlation between contrasted kingdoms. The final question to consider is how do I know that God loves me as Father? How do I know that when Jesus said that in Matthew 6, that that did not only have application for those He was talking to there? Maybe it's wonderful to them that they could trust God as Father when they were tempted to be anxious. But what about you? Does God love you? How do you know that God loves you? And in addition to that, what does it mean that He loves you as, as your Father? What does it mean that God loves you as your Father? Look at verses 26 through 32 and consider some things about this. How we know that God loves us as Father and what correlation there is between these two kingdoms which are contrasted in this text. 
He says, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which is today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things did the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. The point is, in this text, there are two contrasted kingdoms. When Jesus says in the closing verse, or the 33rd verse, seek first the kingdom of God, implied in that is there's another kingdom you might be seeking that's not that one. There's a temporal kingdom. And I believe that's connected back to the beginning of our thoughts. Lay up for yourselves not treasures on earth, one kingdom, temporal, carnal, temporary. Under the domain of darkness, there's a kingdom. Don't put your treasures there in that kingdom. But in the heavenly kingdom. Here he's saying, seek first this kingdom. So you have these two contrasted kingdoms. And yet, what we see in Jesus' argument, I believe, is that God's general provision and sustainment, even in the midst of a fallen world ruled by darkness, Think of this. We're living in a fallen world. God is providing for birds. God is providing for us. And He has. It's a testimony to us that if God, the one we hope in, that we have eternal hope in, that if He's been pleased to provide temporally, how much more is His interest in you related to this eternal, never-ending kingdom? This kingdom of righteousness. You see the point? God's testifying to you in the good things that He does. The everyday mercies that you experience. He's telling you what His character is as Father. And they're not the same kingdom. And here's the point. We can never, we can never devalue or disappreciate those temporal blessings, temporal provisions, but they're not an end in themselves. They're pointing us to the God who's giving them and the promises that He's given you. This is hopeful and encouraging. God has declared and shown Himself to be a God of love, a Father of love through these exact things. And I believe the temporal kindnesses of God are meant to condition us to believe God when He tells us that He loves us. You hear that? The temporal kindnesses of God. I know the unbeliever doesn't see this. I know those who are not elect will never see this. But that doesn't take away from the fact that God's temporal kindnesses are a testimony to us of God's trustworthiness. And they're to compel us to believe Him when He says, I love you. It's to be a reminder to us of what He's done. The hymn that says there are, there are shades in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen, we see goodness, provision, glory, sustenance. Without becoming prosperity preachers, we say, yes, God's good intention for us now is to show us who He is through these things. I want to share a brief testimony with you. A dear friend of mine, without going into the details, my dear friend was severely abused 
as a boy by his dad and to the point of having to well go to some extremes to hide physical and every sort of abuse you could imagine he told me some months ago he said that he had this abiding anxiety and fear that his children were going to die he just constantly was afraid he had ridden on an ambulance and served in that field of work he collected children who had drowned out of swimming pools and he has his own children and he's terrified that they're going to die. Won't take them to a public pool. And he said that he could hardly remember a week that had gone by since his first child had been born that he, that he went an entire week without waking up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night rushing to his children's room to make sure they're breathing. Now I get that when you're first a parent and you first get home from the hospital and you're thinking, why did they let me take this thing home with me? I wish I was still there. But by the time you have two, three, and they're grown, they're no longer in that, that as vulnerable of a condition, but to still be terrified waking up. He said in meditation and prayer one day, he's just bringing these things before the Lord, and he says he has this sense about it. He has this conviction, this realization, that he was attributing characteristics of his earthly father to his heavenly one. He believed that my abusive dad, who would take things from me for no good reason, if I stepped out of line, that that's the character of God as Father. His entire concept of God was skewed because of the influence of His biological Father. And you know, I thought, well, that's a profound realization. And then I was moved to tears when I realized something. And every intense circumstance I've been in, whether my daughter or my wife, being in severe uh, medical condition or situation, there's, there's a supernatural calm that set in. And I thought for the longest time, maybe it's just because I'm cold-hearted or something. There's just this coolness. And after hearing my friend give this testimony, I thought to myself and I realized something. And I, I say this with praise to God. I believe one of God's good purposes in my life has been that I've never once questioned whether or not my own father loved me. Not once. My dad conditioned me to believe God whenever he said, I love you. And don't mishear me to be saying that there's some natural realization that you're going to come to without the Spirit of God. But God does use these means. These means of temporal provision testifying to us of His good character. Well, now we arrive at the million dollar question. Does God really love you? Does God love you whenever you don't have the food in your stomach? If Jesus is saying, trust the character of God, this is where there's this contrast in these kingdoms. Because you say, well, maybe I believe that God loves me when I look and see, well, He's provided for me physically. He's given me a place to live, food in my stomach, people who care about me. God really does love me. But when all those things go away to the person who doesn't know where their next meal is coming from, Whenever you've prayed and trusted, my God loves me as Father, but my child still died. What about that? What is it? What's the rock of assurance and confidence in dealing with that sort of anxiety? Well, let me compel you with this. To ask yourself, what good thing has God done to testify of His love to you? What has God done all of us could count innumerable things the Lord has done. If we but think for a moment, each breath we've taken, every hug or smile from a child, 
Every kind word from a spouse. All these providences that we experience in the here and now pointing us to an eternal glory. And I think it's most clearly demonstrated, and I'll close with this Scripture, from Romans chapter 8, a familiar text, but I want you to think about this in the context of the temptation in light of what we're experiencing that's hard or the possibility of something happening that's hard or difficult of God's testimony to us of His own love. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Remember, we want to know, how do I know that God's for me? How do I know that He loves me? Listen. He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is He that condemns? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that He is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Every one of those things is inclined to producing you anxiety, nervous tension, uncertainty. What does He say? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded. I've been convinced. There's something compelling that's telling me this is true. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's my conclusion. Every good and perfect gift that we receive from God is to rebound or redound back to praise to Him. And it's communicating to us His good character. But as I said, they're not ends in themselves. We see them as a testimony to us. Looking back on what God has done, we're reminded of what He has promised to yet do. What we're trusting in. What He accomplished in Christ even. And what He will do for us. And that we cannot be separated from this love that has been made known to us. That, even coming to a right conclusion about these things doesn't mean you're not going to have anxiety. I'm not suggesting an easy fix to this, but I'm saying these are the truths given to us that we need to wrestle through, be asking and considering in the light of anxiety and worry. So, I pray that's an encouragement to you that you would find your rest in this kingdom in light of the promise for the next.